Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Even when looking at five decades of songwriting, album releases, and concerts, 1978 stands as arguably the busiest, most successful, and most defining year of Billy Joel's career. The year began with the smash hit album, The Stranger, still racing up the charts after its release the previous fall. Twelve months later, Billy would wrap up 1978 with a string of hit songs, golden platinum albums and singles, dozens of reviews, interviews, and media appearances, and tour dates around the world. And of course, he would also release 52nd Street, an album that rivals even The Stranger in terms of album sales, hit songs, fan reception, and accolades. There's a lot to cover in the year that laid the foundation for the next two decades of Billy Joel's music. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel in 1978. I think we've hit the big time now, Michael. This is arguably the biggest year we've covered so far on this podcast. Am I correct? Yeah, I would say so. A lot of times the years we had hit so far, which I think we did by design, they were the off cycle year where it was a new album wasn't out. It was a lot of touring years and even some years where there wasn't a whole lot going on. I think this is the first year, one, where we have a brand new album out. And two, he's simultaneously on the heels of his breakout. And not only on the heels of his breakout, but he's about to release arguably his either second best or the second of the the trilogy, so to speak. At this point, Billy's firing on all cylinders. He found a band he loved. He found a producer he loved. He was finally getting what he wanted out of the studio. And his live shows were rapidly developing into a must-see show. 1978, really, it's off to the races for Billy Joel. Now let's put this in perspective real quick. And this is so wild because of everything he did this year, but The Stranger comes out September of 1977. 52nd Street comes out October of 1978. So in the span of 13 months, he writes another blockbuster album in the middle of doing all this press, touring, TV appearances, you name it. You know, I know historically he's talked about the pressure of songwriting and how hard it was to go back and do another album. As we got into the 80s and 90s, we were seeing longer gaps in between albums. I can't even imagine the pressure, not only you know, the record company management, but also Billy himself <laughs> was being put on him to have to come back with such quick succession and do another record. And the fact that the quality didn't taper off. You know, a lot of times, you know, you hear like, you know, when albums come out so close together, usually the second one suffers a bit because there's really not a whole lot of time in between. That is clearly not the case here. He was almost on an album every year in the 70s. I mean, it's 71 and then 73 to Piano Man, but then it's 74, 76, 77, 78. Turnstiles may have taken two years or a little less than two years from Street Life, but also he scrapped recordings at Caribou Ranch 
and start it over again. So, you know, there's sort of an asterisk next to that timeline. And I would love to know some of the business happenings during this time frame. Back then, it was normal for things to come out fast. I mean, look at Van Halen, you know, the David Lee Roth era. It was, what, 77 to 84. That was six albums in seven years. And he's even said there was a reason they did so many covers. is They just couldn't write that many songs that quickly. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you have like kind of what we ran into with Street Life Serenade where, you know, Billy felt a little pushed, rushed into the studio and we had a couple instrumentals and this and that. And, you know, even Turnstiles was only eight songs. It's a lot. And it's a lot when when the style changed um, or really evolved from The Stranger to 52nd Street, you know, when he added these other influences. I mean, you could say that Turnstiles to Stranger was was a pretty linear progression. You know, you heard all the yeah. things that they were doing and he just figured out how to do them maybe a little better or a little more with a little more pop sheen on them from Turnstiles to The Stranger. And then 52nd Street adds this jazz element. Now that I think about it, more multi-part songs. You think about like moving out, it's got a coda. I wouldn't call that like a multi-part thing. That's just, you know, they tacked on the Layla thing at the end. Uh, the Stranger had like the intro and the outro. Still, it's an intro and an outro. It's not like interwoven in the song. Scenes from an Italian restaurant, obviously, is the epic. Everything else is, you know, structure-wise, pretty normal. Uh, but what's telling is that, you know, just the way you are, that is just, there's no chorus. <laughs> you know, it's just verse, 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 right. verse, verse, bridge, solo, you know, verse, 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 solo. Uh, and then mm-hmm. you get to 52nd Street and you have something like Zanzibar with this jazz break in the middle. You have Stiletto, which has an intro, but then comes that comes out in the middle again and then at the end. And until the night, it's not a multi-part, but that's got a real composed break in the middle of it. Like That's not just a bridge. That's an entire breakdown and buildup sort of thing. There were a lot more moving parts in the songs as well. Bringing it back to 1978 here, it seems like every time we guide into a year, it's a transition. Because to me, the albums seem like such distinct eras. The Stranger is so distinct. The 52nd Street, so distinct. Glass Houses. But the fact that he's in the studio recording 52nd Street while The Stranger is just kicking ass on the charts. And as we'll see as we go into it, he's already getting into Glass Houses. Things are coming out so fast that he may start All for Lane in 1977 and it'll come out three years later. Um, it's really not that far apart, but you know, all of these songs were written in such proximity that like, for example, I remember seeing a demo tape of liberties that had from 1979 that had good night Saigon on it or early version of it during this stretch, especially from 76 to 82, all of this was written in very quick succession. So it's, it's pretty wild to see how, how different it is and how he was able to figure out, okay, if this batch works together as an album, this batch or this isn't quite done, so I'll save it. And then it'll finally find a home two years later. Once again, thanks to Jeff Fisher for providing us some amazing level of detail on things that happened this year. Yeah, Jeff has a pretty meticulous list, which is amazing. He's got every newspaper article he's been able to find, every magazine interview, every feature, you name it. His lists are so incredibly robust. It provides an incredible resource and timeline for us to, as a guide, as we do our research and put these things together. And he's become not only a good friend of the podcast, but a pretty invaluable resource. As I'm looking at this timeline, it makes me wonder what it was like writing and recording this album as the band is touring, as the reviews are coming out, and as the singles are going up the charts. Now, we're going to take a little left turn here. And I'm going to talk really, really quick about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? In this one sense, 
Michael's got to look like, okay, it's going to be one of those nights. <laughs> the movie or the TV show? <laughs> the TV show. <laughs> that was one of the first shows that was able to sort of incorporate what was happening in the fan base in real time, because now we had like internet forums and things being said on the forums were making their way into episodes, even in that season. So if people were saying something early on and we're pretty used to that by now. Yeah. Let's take our podcast, right? The second an episode drops, Michael and I just keep checking it like the ticker tape in the 1920s to see how we're doing. And we get like up to the second, how many we've down, you know, how many downloads we've gotten that week, that month, everything. You can use all that data if you wanted to like figure out what works and what doesn't. But you know, back then it had to be much more of a delay. I mean, obviously you knew stuff was working, but this must have been real interesting to see how different songs were charting off this album as he's writing the new one and as he's as he's going into pre-production. Because out the singles are still coming out after he, he first goes into the studio to start 52nd Street, and he's certainly still touring. So he's seeing the, these reactions to things that just came out. And you have to wonder how that affects writing the next album, because this is the first time he's getting this much attention. You know, The Stranger was coming off of Turnstiles, which by all accounts was not a commercial success. Right. And so this was like the make it or break it kind of record as far as Billy and Columbia Records goes at least from some of the anecdotes I've heard, I'm sure Billy was in danger of getting dropped. And yeah. so the fact that, you know, that was only two years before what we're talking about today, what a roller coaster. The headspace for songwriting, the headspace for recording, the headspace for touring, and the headspace for press are very different. Now, granted, touring and press often get married. A lot of times those kind of go hand in hand, but to be focusing on songwriting while you're also touring is a very difficult task. Not many artists can do it. And he couldn't have had much downtime before they went back into the studio. I agree with you. I, I think it does happen a lot. You do hear about bands writing on the road. I think it's got to be tougher for Billy because he didn't have a piano. <laughs> I mean, I know, yeah. uh, you know, Ian Anderson's from Jethro Tull talked about, especially in the early days, they would be touring with Zeppelin and Zeppelin would be off, you know, just seeing how many mortal sins they could break in the span of an hour. And Ian's yeah. back in his room trying to write the next album on an acoustic guitar kind of thing, which is sidebar, yeah. which is why uh, Aqualung has so many acoustic interludes, because that was the sort of thing you could write in a hotel room. But yeah, you, you are in three different headspaces at the same time, for sure. Yeah, with all that in mind, let's, let's jump into the year. Let's go month by month, uh, almost day by day, and see what happens in what's arguably Billy's busiest year. So as we mentioned, The Stranger only just came out a couple months prior. So he's getting some press on The Stranger in a few magazines. We got High Fidelity, Stereo Review does a review of The Stranger. And Just the Way You Are, 45, is um, released in the UK. And all this is within the first two weeks of the year. What's really wild is January 18th, The Stranger went platinum. And it was still in the Billboard Top 10 a couple months after its release. And this is really like peak success of that album. You know, we're just a couple months out. So the album really was taken off at this point. And as you'll see, as we get, especially into March and April, things are really taking off from here. So the first piece of press we have, and pretty much the first thing that happens is in the year is we get an article in High Fidelity magazine called Billy Joel Up From Piano Man. 
the entire issue is up as a PDF online. So talk about a time capsule. Like, first of all, this magazine is 123 pages because back then, you know, you didn't just drip out a blog post, two or three short yeah. ones a day. You actually had to like wait a month and yeah. then read all your stuff. But it's it's also pretty cool just looking at this and uh, and just, just seeing what these old magazines look like. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, salivating because every, every ad is like a hi-fi receiver or turntable or something. It's just pretty cool. Definitely a robust article. Let's read some highlights from this. So it starts off with a quote, just after Piano Man came out, I was like the darling of the press. You know, they like to pick up on unknowns and make them their little heroes. I was new to the success thing. So I figured, oh, wow, I'm King Kong. I'm great. And then out of the quote, that was 1973. Now it's four years later and I'm an old dog and I can't get hung up on in that anymore. If a record's a hit, that's nice. I just write songs. So that's his mindset, at least going into The Stranger. So here's an interesting tidbit. When we think about the jazz influence on 52nd Street and some of the elements on Rosalinda's eyes, it says, uh, early listening experiences included the, quote, crazy Latin records his father brought home from trips to South America and the likes of Dave Brubeck and Oscar Peterson. His taste in rock and roll was selective. A lot of the records I thought were stupid. I liked Phil Spector records, the old Sam and Dave stuff, James Brown, Otis Redding. Most influential was the Beatles, which we all know. So funny that he he picked up some uh, Latin elements from his father, which which gets distilled into a song about his mother in 1978. Here's another prescient quote. Joel is an eclectic and spontaneous writer. He likes to change. Yeah. Quote, the second album can never be the thing that the first one was. Each tune needed a different treatment. Just because I wrote a song on the piano doesn't mean it should feature the piano. It was their idea of the image they wanted me to project. And he's talking about going into Street Life Serenade with uh, Michael Stewart producing at that point. Well, he always talked about wanting to be in a band, wanting it to be a band. So to me, that makes sense. I remember Liberty on the Shades of Grey documentary. It's like, you know, every album we start out like Billy wants it, like he's a a keyboard player in the corner of the bar in a band. You know, whatever serves the song is going to be what takes the lead. Another interesting tidbit. uh, And again, this is going into 1978. So, you know, if this is released, if this article comes out January of 78, you know, that means it was written. uh, If it was written after The Stranger came out, I'd almost be surprised. But at this point, as of the writing of this, there was certainly no guarantee that that The Stranger was going to blow up like it did. So you then get Joel tours nine months out of the year, in part because he loves it and in part because he claims his album sales aren't enough to sustain him. My family calls me up and they say, you must be rich now. You must have made a million. But he says that since his newest recording is the only one on which he owns all the publishing rights free and clear, he isn't rich. He also asserts incredibly that he's made a total of only $7,000 on Piano Man. This is why I go out on the road so much. I basically make my living by touring. He tries to write all the time and is a member of the trunk school storing away bits and pieces that might not finish themselves into a few years hence. But he prefers to write spontaneously, quote, the best stuff is the stuff that comes out real fast, he says. He conceived, wrote, and finished 15 verses of The Entertainer while watching the Midnight Special one night. Bits and pieces that'll tuck away and may not surface for a while. That's funny. Man, did they write better back then? (laughs) Like, this article is like so many tidbits about just the, the, the craftsmanship and a little bit about the business. There is so much packed into even just that little bit that you read there yeah. that you just wouldn't get out of a lot of writing today, unfortunately. You wouldn't. But, you know, to be fair, you also wouldn't get this out of his out of all the same artists. Billy wasn't uh, 
David Bowie or Robert Plant, as we've talked about, you know, did you ever read like that famous um, Rolling Stone feature on the Allman Brothers that came out just before Dwayne Allman died? Or I'm sorry, it came out after Dwayne Allman died. Yeah, and I it was believe so. Sort of like an ode to the debauchery of it all. Yeah. You're not going to get an article like that about Billy. He's not that kind of guy. So he's going to sit there and he's going to tell you how much he made and, and what his process is like. But yeah, it talks about the jazz groove of The Stranger, shows him to be about as far as away from the stepwise bass line and simple repetitive melodious, melodious hook of Piano Man as he is from its, quote, mushy production. That jazz feel started with New York State of Mind. New York has a kind of jazz influence on me, and I've been leaning more into jazzier things to give Richie Kanata a chance to blow. That's an interesting through line leading up to 52nd Street, I think. Yeah, he was influenced by the jazz stuff, but he leaned into it even more because he really wanted to give Richie something. That's a testament to how much he loved the musicians. The fact that he, that like, what a selfless thing for the artist. Like he could be like, F it, you know, you play what's left. <laughs> you don't realize until you, until you see a bootleg really at this point or hear a bootleg, but you know, Richie was doing so much background stuff that was kind of thankless, certainly not in the spotlight. And then that saxophone stuff here and there, he wasn't kind of blowing through the verses and things like that. Quote, I think I'm good at what I do. And if you like what you're doing, that's a big part of it. So what more could I want to be a musician and to be making a living is a miracle to begin with. He does just about the whole album live with orchestration relegated to the role of sweetening the basic track, which determines the arrangement usually includes drum, bass, some guitar, piano, and the final vocal quote, I don't believe in fixing. We try to get as close to what it should really be when we first lay down the basics. That's the whole thing. So, you know, as we are, again, talking about how quickly he recorded these songs, let's not forget that that's his process, is to really get a snapshot, which is almost deceptive. Again, because, you know, you have all that orchestration, you have all these moving parts in the arrangements, but those basics are getting knocked out in one shot. Billy and Phil were all about capturing the moment. It was more about a moment and a feel and a performance other than, you know, as opposed to getting things perfect. So also in January, Just the Way You Are and Get It Right the First Time gets released January 13th in the UK. And then uh, here it is five days later, January 18th, The Stranger Goes Platinum, still listed in the Billboard Top 10, as you mentioned. The, stra- the album gets reviewed in the magazine Stereo Review. There's also an NME, New Music Express magazine article. And yep. we jump into February... February 13th, we get a feature in Time Magazine, which is funny to read because I guess we kind of think of Time Magazine as a little stiffer now. Right. Maybe not stiff, a little, little, little AM radio to your, uh, to your, more, to sure. your vice <laughs> or, or whatever else. But yeah. still, I mean, it's more of a paper record. But at any rate, so it's, this is uh, the brash ballad of Billy Joel, High Torque Serenader from the Street Corner. Hey. <laughs> and it starts off, hey, Virginia Callahan, remember Mrs. Joel's kid, Billy, from down the street, the greaser who took piano lessons and had his shifty eye on you? Well, he just wrote a song about you, and you won't like it. So clearly we're getting right into uh, Only the Good Die Young here. <laughs> the title of the song is a real snapper, an old tough guy cliche flipped around and twisted like a blade. Ooh, this guy's really uh, flourishing with his pen here. I see uh, that. Yeah, let's see. Now is certainly the time for it. A wide-ranging, heavily attended concert tour and the release last September of his fifth album. Returns must have been heavy and all flowing in his direction. The album glided into the top five this week and it has long since gone way past platinum with ease. So funny enough, this must have been written pretty close to its release date of February 13th because it was less than a month ago that it hit platinum. Yeah. Although the uh, long since gone way past may just be a bit of hyperbole. Or maybe well, not. You know, maybe it just kept going. <laughs> I'm you, sure no, it was in certified. All honesty, it was a huge 
bestseller for Columbia Records. I remember reading about it back then, and it was it went on to become for years Columbia's biggest seller of all time. It just took off this year and just just was you know moving moving units as they say, like mm-hmm. every time, every couple of weeks, every month, it would just up and up and up and up. Yeah, this is what allows you to tour as well too when an album continues to do well. Because I'm going to use another Metallica reference, but it's totally relatable to that. When the Black Album came out, you know, that that album to this date has sold 16 million in, in America, which is insane. And <laughs> when they were touring that album, that that tour went from fall of 91 through 1993. Like, it was a solid two and a half years. And That's insanity. 300 and something dates. I want to say it was Cliff Bernstein, their manager at Q Prime. He said, you know, do one leg of the tour through America. It would do really well. And then we'd keep getting these offers in, in the same cities again. We're like, you know, we just played Detroit five months ago and they kind of crunched the math. They're like, well, the record is selling so well that even if we just played to the people who bought the album since we were there last, we can mm-hmm. fill an arena. Yeah. Cause you, all of a sudden you have this new audience for it. So that's why they were able to just keep circling the globe for two, three years because the record kept selling so well. They were just filling arenas and stadiums everywhere. Well, I guess they don't do it as much now because we're back into a singles market. But, you know, when you're releasing singles all through the year, as Billy did with The Stranger, that keeps the uh, the excitement up the whole time as well. And these days now, too, even when an album comes out, it seems like more singles get released before the album. And once the album's out, the single trajectory tends to taper off quicker. Usually it would be like one, maybe two, but typically one single before the album. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have the remainder spaced out after its release. But these days it's very much the opposite. I think this is starting to point to that. What did you call it? Media training, media coaching. Remember how we said like, he really knows his stuff So check out this uh, passage. Joel enjoys the malleability of his music just as he revels in the seemingly contradictory influences that molded him since he began improvising piano exercises to relieve the boredom of daily lessons when he was a kid. What do you have to pay for commas, dude? Jesus Christ. That was a a long sentence. (laughs) Uh, You're you're desperately searching for a place to take a breath there. (laughs) Yeah, I was looking for a comma. There was nothing. (laughs) Give me something. Okay, so here's what I want to get to. He counts for major inspiration the metric acrobatics of Dave Brubeck's Take 5 and the seamless jazz fantasies of Oscar Peterson. He dreams of the day Ray Charles will pull one of the best songs out of the Joel portfolio, quote, and I'll hear New York State of Mind at the World Series, quote. So we get the same two references that we got last time, Oscar Peterson and Dave Brubeck. So that must have yeah. been his take for this uh, cycle of interviews. And uh, how prescient is that on Ray Charles? Didn't quite happen that way, but no. pretty close. But he got Tony Bennett for New York State yeah, of Mind. Right. He got Tony <laughs> to do New York State of Mind, which is, I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he got to do an original song with Ray. I mean, so right. he's already like got these bucket list items in his mind in 78 yeah. that um, would come... <laughs> Come through in the next 20, 30 years. That was uh, February 13th. And once again, five days later, February 18th, we have uh, Only the Good Die Young and Just the Way You Are on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, this would be uh, Billy's very first SNL appearance. He would appear in 1978. It would be 1981, 1989, and 1993. And I love it because, you know, Chevy Chase, I remember, introduces him saying uh, the Hicksville High School class of 
was in 1968 uh having their 10-year reunion and one of their alumnus isn't there because he's here yeah so it's it's funny like you forget how young he was at that time right yeah. it'd only be his 10-year reunion <laughs> this is an interesting lineup because billy really didn't have a permanent guitar player at this point russell had left the band by this point and we had steve Kahn and hugh mccracken on acoustic guitars for this one snl in the 70s was just felt like a a dirty underground show and that was the charm of it it had yeah. the grit it just didn't feel clean and even you know billy's got the the beard got the scruff going on he's wearing that brown coat not a fancy piano it's just a grand piano on wheels with the top off and just everything about it just felt really gritty to me yeah even though he's playing just the way you are, which is about as anti-grid as it gets. At, le- at least he gets in only the good die young in there as well. But yeah, you know, it's like, you know, he wasn't waft and clean shaven for this. You know, he went in as is. I've always loved the bands that were just like, you're seeing them on stage pretty much and what they would wear. And so yeah, the band on this was Steve Kahn, Hugh McCracken, Liberty DeVito, Doug Stegmeyer, and Richie Kanata. Yeah, they're just all in a, in a tight little group there and just sounded great. After that, we get a, another quick blitz of press, and now he's off to Europe for a string of shows. Well, actually, I mean, Europe through March, uh, we'll go back, but Europe through March, and then uh, we'll say the Far East in April, the Australia and Japan. So all through March, he's in Belgium, he's in Germany, England. In the middle of this tour, Just the Way You Are is certified gold on March 6th. For the RIAA, that means 500,000 units have been sold. Uh, Half a million is gold and 1 million is platinum. You know, now they factor in streaming and digital downloads. Everything's weighted differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is a time where things were just strictly going on sales. March 7th, next day, uh, moving out and back with Everybody Has a Dream is released, I guess, in Spain. It's a Spanish import. Then a couple of days later, he does the old gray whistle test in England. That was on March 13th. He plays Miami 2017, moving out, New York State of Mind, The Entertainer, She's Always a Woman, Root Beer Rag, Just the Way You Are, Only the Good Die Young, and Souvenir. And it's on to the Royal Albert Hall the next night, over to Germany uh, for, I guess it looks like a TV appearance. And this time he does Miami 2017, Somewhere Along the Line, New York State of Mind, Travel and Prayer, Just the Way You Are, Root Beer Rag, She's Only a Woman, Only the Good Die Young, Say Goodbye to Hollywood and Souvenir. It's the way to go that, you know, you're promoting an album, so you're going to play a whole bunch of songs off that album. But it's 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 still interesting to see which of the old songs are still in the mix, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, when's the last time you played Travel and Prayer? When's the last time you played Somewhere Along the Line? Or Root Beer Rag, for that matter, or Souvenir, but those were staples up until what? Would you say Glass Houses, at least? I mean, he did Souvenir live from Long Island. Did he do Root Beer Rag live from Long Island? Um, I don't think it was. It wasn't on the recording. I don't think he played it, but he did play it on and off throughout the 80s. And even yeah. over the last 20 years, it's it's sneaked into a set when he needed a break from right. the vocal. And that's the thing. You know, I know we've touched on this before, but, you know, as every album comes out, a couple songs, you know, fall off the set list and kind of don't return in regular form pretty soon we're going to be having 52nd street and he's going to be playing big shop my life honesty Mm -hmm. he's going to be playing zanzibar on that tour he's going to be playing until the night he's going to be playing you know you know probably half the album carrying forward once we get into glass houses you know you got big shop my life and honesty our regulars so you know there's three slots that less (laughs) less <laughs> as the albums mm-hmm. go yeah, yeah so so each time you know when he's actively putting out albums you know the representation from each album just has to dwindle because you know you only have so many songs to play 
live. And this is something that dogs a lot of bands. I'm sure you can make a Metallica reference here too, but The Stranger comes out and as he alludes to on the back of Songs in the Attic, now you have this whole new group of fans that, that are not familiar with your old stuff. So they're here to hear The Stranger. And maybe they'll, you know, withstand, so to speak, a few older ones. Just like you were saying with Metallica, they could go back around to that city because people just bought that album. The guy that just bought that album probably has not had time, especially in the pre-digital yeah. days, to get acquainted with those those previous records. We talk about Billy's left turns. Metallica did that big time, too, from Aunt Justice mm-hmm. for All, the, the Black album, then five years later was Load, which right. was... I love the Load records, but you had Hero of the Day, Until It Sleeps, very different songs that like young bratty punk Metallica in the early 80s would have like, you know, thrown beer at. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. You know what I just noticed too? It's funny that uh, Moving Out and Everybody Has a Dream comes out Spanish import before it comes out in the States because it comes out March 18th of 78. Yeah. So it was about six months or so after... The Stranger comes out, it's already platinum, and now Moving Out makes its appearance. <laughs> in the U.S., it, it peaked at number 17, mm-hmm. uh, and it was on the charts for about 14 weeks. An article in the Record Mirror, Joel Stranger No More, March 25th. And we wrap up the month and his time in Europe with the Theatre Royale, Drury Lane uh, Lond- in London. Brings us into April. Uh, now he's in Australia and Japan. Five shows in Australia, two in Japan. He's on the cover of Cashbox magazine. You know, whatever happened to Cashbox, that was like it back in the day. That was like... Yeah, that was a real industry rag too, right? Oh, huge. Here's something for you to uh, spend a little more money on, Michael. Oh, no. There's a uh, copy of it with him on the cover from 1978 on eBay at the low, low price of $89. (laughs) $8 expedited shipping in the US. Oh, that's it? Yeah. So for 100 bucks, it could be mine. So now we get into May. And here it is, uh, May 6, 1978, Just the Way You Are goes platinum. Barely two months prior to hit gold. That was some exponential growth right there. And then we have the next single coming out. So like, again, you know, as we were saying, man, it's just this whole this whole year, he just keeps peppering these singles out, which is amazing. It's almost like he could have taken another year for uh, 52nd yeah. Street. Yeah, and the, with the way Columbia did it, it was like these singles would be spaced out and literally... The single run would be done on the album just in time for the next one to come out. So it would just be like a seamless transition Mm -hmm. album to album to album in this time frame. The FM soundtrack comes out May 6th. I've never even seen the movie, but this this soundtrack was just loaded with classic artists of the day. FM by Steely Dan, Night Moves, Bob Seger, Fly Like an Eagle, Steve Miller Band, Cold as Ice, Foreigner, Tom Petty, Breakdown. Randy Meisner, Badman, Life in the Fast Lane, Eagles, Do It Again, Steely Dan, Lido Shuffle, Boz Skaggs, More Than a Feeling, Boston. It's a double, it was a double album too, the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, Billy's contribution was Just the Way You Are. But you had Dan Fogelberg, Jimmy Buffett, Linda Ronstadt, Doobie Brothers, James Taylor, Joe Walsh, Queen. The movie, it says it's a comedy drama about internal conflicts at an FM radio station. Right. So it's kind of, uh, is it like WKRP? <laughs> I was going to say, what was the one with Adam Sandler in the 90s? Where meets Airheads, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Airheads. <laughs> There's three of you. You're not exactly alone. <laughs> what was it? Yeah. <laughs> Who would win a, what was it, fist fight? Who would win a fist fight? Lemmy or God? Lemmy. Trick question. Lemmy is God. <laughs> Okay, so at this point, Only the Good Die Young comes out in the States. Now he's got three songs all in the Hot 100 at the same time. It's moving out just the way you are in Only the Good Die Young. 
We see moving out and back with Vienna get re get released in the UK. Right up in the Washington Post, the Billy Joel hit "Only the Good Die Young." So then we're into July, and uh, one of the more interesting headlines that unfortunately I can't find the text for is in Hit Parader, and it's Billy Joel. He doesn't want to be a box of cornflakes. Why? You know, can of beans. Come on, that's the obvious one. Why doesn't he want? <laughs> he doesn't want to be a can of beans. That seems to be a gimme. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess they weren't they weren't up on the back catalog at this point. And here we go. Now we're in A and R recording. Yep. Yep. We still have a couple singles to come out. Yep. And uh, we're recording. So between July and August, he lays down a bit of Zanzibar, Big Shot, Honesty. He says Honesty number one, Half a Mile Away, Until the Night, Stiletto, but yep. it was called Forgiveness at that point. Rosalinda's yep. Eyes, called Senorita, Honesty number two, Rosalinda's Eyes, Big Shot. There's an untitled demo which turns out to be which turns into Zanzibar. Yeah, here's where it yep. gets interesting. Well, I'll say honesty with no drums, and then through the long night and close to the borderline. Yeah, so those, yeah, those were originally floating around at that point. The close to the borderline uh, track too. It's totally different lyrics, totally different melody. It's just him on a piano. It's almost similar to the Miami 2017. Yeah, this is real 70s. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's almost Eaglesy. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny because like that was such a, I mean, granted it came out in 80, but like I remember that I was like, that was such a like New York in the 70s or New York in the 80s song, even just mm -hmm. a little more caustic. Like the 70s, you feel like the 70s in, in, in New York were like debauchery, but the 80s were just like straight up caustic. Like the 80s was just, you know, <laughs> we got a problem yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. We get an article in Forbes, which I also can't find, unfortunately called They Were Mauling Her Man, which makes me think that it's got to do with Elizabeth. Yeah. That's just pure As conjecture. Forbes being, you know, Forbes being a, typically a, a business magazine. So that would, that would make sense. By July 18th. As he's once again, as he's recording 52nd street, she's always a woman back with Vienna comes out as a single. And that peaks the next month at number 17, but spends 15 mm -hmm. weeks on the charts. Going to August, we have articles in Song Hits Magazine and Catholic Republic, and I'm sure Catholic Republic uh, had all had to say. something to say. Yeah, let's <laughs> see. Uh, we're into September now. Yep. And here we go. We have the first edition of the 52nd Street Tour book. Yeah. Opening night of a 45-city run is at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in New Haven on September 26th, followed by the Spectrum 28th and 29th in Philadelphia, and Boston Gardens on the 30th uh, in Boston, obviously. Kind of weird routing there when you think about it. It's a quick run, but, you know, it's a little uppy-downy there. On the heels of that, we get Billy Joel at his best, an article in the Boston Globe. Yeah, so, and the next night, we've got um, Capital Center in Landover, Maryland. We got a set list for this one. This kind of gives you an idea of what uh, what early 52nd Street tour set lists were looking like. We got The Stranger somewhere along the line, Summer Highland Falls, Piano Man, Moving Out, Prelude Angry Young Man, I Love These Days, My Life, New York State of Mind, Entertainer, Vienna, Stiletto, She's Always a Woman, Root Beer Reg, Just the Way You Are, Big Shot. We get another article by Eve Zebert in the Washington Post. This one's Cynical, Wistful Billy. Uh, now we're up in Canada, Buffalo, Toledo. A little quick run in August. Mm -hmm. Another one by Eva Zebert. Eve Zebert. We got to find this woman. The Hicksville Slugger. Yeah. Another one in the Washington Post. So this is actually two in a week in the Washington Post. Here it is, October 9th, 52nd Street Drops. Yeah, and I actually hear conflicting release dates. As we've been doing these, we've discovered that pretty much until the 90s, 
it was really hard to pin down some of these Billy Joel release dates because I found sources that are all over the place. So the notes that we have and that Jeff Fisher dug up has what, October 9th? Billy Joel's website has October 12th and Wikipedia has October 11th. Well, I guess somebody did an average for Wikipedia. We're basically looking at the second week of October this came out. Right. Uh, and I can't find these Eve Zebart articles, but I'm going to read a little of one. I'm going to read a little of a couple from uh, 1980 and 1981, just to give you a quick sense of of her writing style, I guess, just so you could yeah. get a, get an idea of what she was writing. So this is a note from Billy Joel, Glass Houses, April 11th, 1980. There's a shudder running through the punk community and at least a shiver across the new wave, a reaction to the slow absorption into commercial rock of seemingly antithetical punk stylisms, punk Evolved his loyal opposition to big business music. He was counter-revolutionary, intentionally regressive. Paragons of rock, the Rolling Stones, the Who, are accused of having lost their virtue to the record companies. And now comes Billy Joel, quote, the Piano Man, with an album that gets some of its muscle from the revivalist new wave, but manages to send it up at the same time. I like this sentence. This is how folk purists must have felt about the birds and how blues adherents still feel about Boogie. That's a nice line. No That's comma good. necessary. <laughs> well, there is a comma, but <laughs> and it was in the right yeah. spot. I didn't even feel it. That's a good goddamn comma. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, airing Billy's Attic, 19, October 8th, 1981. Billy Joel is a Samuel Johnson of rock and roll, driven by his command of language to the verge of poetry, but solidified by common sense. Another great sentence. I want to read more by this woman because she packs a lot into these sentences. And Seriously. I like it. And I got to look up this word solidified, make or become hard or solid. I also like a good word that you can figure out by context. Like you kind of knew what, what, what she meant. He has a clear vision of human frailty and the wit to imply it. I like that. <laughs> Joel's album notes are not always enlightening. For, his, for example, he says that Summer Highland Falls embodies, quote, the futility of introspection and the symmetry of surrender. That's like picking lint out of your belly button. What the hell? That's like picking lint out of your belly button and calling it omphaloskepsis, but the song itself is nicely balanced between romance and pragmatism. Dude, we, can we stop? I just want to keep reading stuff this woman writes. <laughs> <laughs> what in the Sam hell? I guess it's navel gazing. Contemplation of one's navel as an aid to meditation. Wow. Okay. So there's more than that than just... Uh, right. You know, just, just that aid. There's a whole other thing going on yourself. there. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Okay. Now we have the... Uh, Omphaloskepsis. Thank you, YouTube. Omphaloskepsis. I knew that. I'm going to I'm gonna edit myself later and make it sound like I knew that word all along. All right. We are uh, in full tour form here. He is playing almost every night now after this release. 9th and then 11, 12, 13, 15, 16, 18, 19, 20, 22, 23, 24, 26, 28, 30th, and 31st. And that's all uh, October. So we'll back up a little. October 9th, 52nd Street comes out. October 23rd, 52nd Street goes platinum. October 24th, My Life comes out. Yeah, a couple weeks. You yeah. sold, was that a million records? Yeah. Again, positioning this record right on the heels of The Stranger while it's still hot, doing well. Yeah. Stingles are still doing well. They're like, yeah, we're going to drop 52nd Street and let that record pick up where this one left off. Just under three months from She's Always a Woman being released. Yeah, so he rolled right into that. You you couldn't catch your breath. Also worth noting that 52nd Street would be Billy's first number one album. 
It hit number one in the U.S. on October 28th, and it peaked for uh, eight weeks at number one. And it would it would be on the chart for 76 weeks, which is you know about a year and a half. Because that's going to lead them right into glass houses. Man, no wonder people that didn't like them ended up hating them. Like you couldn't you couldn't escape this, dude. Especially if you had to write this stuff. Right about right. it. Rock and roll was definitely becoming homogenized. Punk was yeah, was the no outlier doubt. to it. So you know, I'm sure. Some of these people that came on wishing they could write about the Velvet Underground or the Allman Brothers or Mothers of Invention are like, ah, I'm definitely 10 years too late. <laughs> and they're throwing them out. Uh, she's always a woman and, and just the way you are. <laughs> Rolling into November, uh, got some more press coming in here. An article in City Magazine, another one called The Stranger in Paradise by Timothy White uh, in Crawdaddy. Let's see if we can find that one. There's no way I'm going to search The Stranger in Paradise and make that come up. <laughs> Take my hand. I'm editing that right out. Hey, we got some on sale on eBay here. This one's only $45, Michael. I tell you what, my latest things I've been looking for on eBay are the um, remastered cassettes from 1998. It's all the new audio masters and the artwork is all different and um, looks really good. I've managed to get, as of this recording, Piano Man, Street Life Serenade, The Stranger, 52nd Street, Songs in the Attic. An Innocent Man and Greatest Hits. They're not terribly easy to find. Are they expensive? Or are you uh, getting lucky on those? I uh, run the gamut. I think that most I paid for one on its own was like 10 bucks. Not bad. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, Street Life, I paid 20, but it was a lot of like five Billy Joel cassettes, four of which I had. So I've got extras. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was the only way I was finding it. Let's see. We're in the South and the Midwest at this point uh, in November. So, well, you know, let's say October, you know, October, uh, same places, actually. I didn't even get into this too much. With that run in October is Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Colorado, Utah, and California. Now in November, he's in Arizona, Washington, Oregon, Oregon, Arizona again. That's how they say it. (laughs) Gone or Gin? Gin. Yeah, that's what I thought. Or gone, like Oregon. Or Oregon. Oregon. Oregon, yeah. Yeah. It's a close one. It's uh, Arizona, New Mexico. Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, and Florida. You know, a lot of these, you don't think about Billy Torrin that much. Right. When the last time you heard about him down in Alabama. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So now, now that the, the album is out and has gone platinum, let's grab uh, the set list from November 28th, 1978 at the Bayfront Center Auditorium in St. Petersburg. Now okay. it's uh, The Stranger, Summer Highland Falls, Piano Man, My Life, uh, Angry Young Man, Honesty. Four in, we get the first one from 52nd Street and then the sixth. Moving out, New York State of Mind, Stiletto. You don't hear that one coming up too much. No. The Entertainer, Until the Night, Vienna, Zanzibar, She's Always a Woman, Root Beer Rag, Just the Way You Are, Ballad of Billy the Kid, Big Shot, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Only the Good Die Young, Get It Right the First Time, Say Goodbye to Hollywood, Ending with Souvenir. Does this exist in bootleg? I kind of want to hear this. This is a pretty cool set list. I love that, like, and then just Billy the Kid comes flying in out of nowhere. I like to get it right the first time, just getting some play in there. Near the end of the set, yeah. It's everything off uh, 52nd Street, except for Rosalinda's Eyes and uh, and the title track. Yeah. yeah. Which, sidebar, man, if he didn't put that song on there, it'd have been a perfect album. You know, it could have worked as an instrumental, just kind of a little jam tucked away at the end without the lyric. Yeah, yeah almost like... Uh, uh, you know what he, all right, well, you know, the, far be it for me to Monday morning quarterback a platinum album from 40 plus years ago, but. <laughs> but I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if the, the, the album started with 
the piano riff from 52nd Street and then crashes into Big Shot and then ends, either ends with 52nd Street as is or with just like the, the cakewalk jam at the end. Mm-hmm. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah. Billy, if only I was alive and around back then to help you out. I'm sorry. You, you could have really been something with my tutelage. <laughs> you had to settle for number one. Yeah, right. I guess this is, a, okay, so this is what I'm guessing is a roundup article. It's Rock mm-hmm. on TV by Mark Meller in Circus Magazine with comments by Billy Joel. So yeah, kind of putting this together from what I'm finding in Google um, from similar articles is that it's kind of a roundup of, uh, I guess, Rock and Roll TV appearances, it looks like. Washington Post again. But this one's by Jeffrey Himes, Billy Joel on 52nd Street. Heart opens for him in uh, Florida on November 29th. Yeah, I saw that. How do I say this? This was either the most redundant marketing move ever, or this was just when the payment came due. On November 30th, there's a full page ad in Rolling Stone for 52nd Street. Like, as if you had to promote it by now. (laughs) I think we've gotten the picture. But, you know, that could have been the ad that was bought way back when to get the coverage kind of thing in a you know magazine that was notoriously not kind to billy's work yeah. in that day yeah maybe it was an fu <laughs> yeah it's like we're gonna force some good press in your magazine <laughs> i've seen this ad before i just pulled it up billy standing outside the diner holding the trumpet this 52nd street go there with someone who knows it 15 bucks on ebay yeah we'll get into this in a minute but uh you know he does get a piece of rolling stone the next month. So I guess that was uh, the prelude, if you will, to uh, his year-end coverage there. Let's back up to the beginning of December now. We have another run. Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina again, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio. Um, Billy Joel sings the praises of, article by John Rockwell in the New York Times. We got Pittsburgh on December 11th, and then he rounds out the year uh, with a hometown show, hometown show, if you will, run a hometown shows, December 14th through 16th, Madison Square Garden. So let's take a look at the set list for the December 16th. Uh- for this one, we've got The Stranger, Summer Highland Falls, Piano Man, My Life, Angry Young Man, Moving Out, New York State of Mind, Stiletto, The Entertainer, Until the Night, Vienna, Zanzibar, She's Always a Woman, Root Beer Rag, Rosalinda's Eyes, Just the Way You Are, Ballad of Billy the Kid again. Big Shot. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Seems from an Italian restaurant. Only the Good Die Young. Miami 2017. Captain Jack. Get it right the first time in Souvenir. Captain Jack, one of the notable um, appearances. You know, despite it being, you know, the big hit WMMR from that, uh, from that, you know, recording back in early 70s and it appearing on Songs in the Attic, you know, it really wasn't a big concert staple outside of philadelphia yeah i was just thinking that that he did it in madison square garden yeah so from there let's talk about his year-end press here right so we have the new york times we have billy the kid by tony schwartz and newsweek uh i'll hit those rolling stones in a moment we have another one by the new york times rock tour by billy joel again by john rockwell uh village voice billy joel local local boy makes nice let's get into what a full page ad in rolling stone in november buys you in december First, the article is Billy Joel, The Miracle of 52nd Street. Despite the massive success of The Stranger and 52nd Street, the hit-making pop star struggles for respect and credibility by Dave Marsh. So certainly uh, one of the top-tier writers. I feel like we've read this one before, but maybe not. Nobody ever mistook Billy Joel for a matinee idol. In a world that worships angular, tall, rangy types like Robert De Niro and John Travolta, Joel is out of place. Short and thick-bodied, with eyes as enormous and frequently as bloodshot as Robert Mitchum's, with a busted nose and lopsided grin, 
Joel is a perfect Hell's Kitchen wise guy, a real-life dead-end kid. He walks on a rolling lope, too fluid to be a limp, a gait common only to sailors and young men who grew up wearing pants that, while stylish, were a bit snug in the crotch. His diction would appall the Shangri-Las. Okay. <laughs> I like Eva better, but that's, that's not bad. Uh, you know, it's funny about he, his his walk. I know I had never heard that before. No, no, neither have I. But I wonder if we see that. Is that the gate he walks with in the uh, My Life video when he's like kind of A and down the hallway he's of like, A&R? Yeah, yeah, I, I can, yeah, I can see it. And that must be what he's trying to describe here. Still, Billy Joel is somebody's hero, The Stranger. His 1977 album has sold more than 4 million copies making it the second biggest seller in the history of Columbia Records. Bridge Over Troubled Waters is the biggest. The album spawned four substantial hit singles, Moving Out, She's Always a Woman, Only the Good Die Young, and Just the Way You Are, and It Was Not a Fluke. The new LP, 52nd Street, sold 2 million copies in its first month on the shelves. After only three weeks, it went to number one on record world charts, knocking off Greece. The first single from 52nd Street, My Life, was hit bound before it was pressed. And as a concert attraction, Joel is also booming. He now plays 15,000 seat arenas, in cities where a year ago he was working clubs. That's a great comparison. Mm-hmm. So far, that description is of a basic 70s success story not so far removed from Bob Seger or Boz Skaggs or Fleetwood Mac. Knowing that Joel has been recording with little commercial luck since 1971 only enhances the impression that it's a formula triumph. Billy Joel doesn't buy that. Quote, everybody assumes, especially nowadays, I get this a lot. Boy, isn't it great? You're successful. Doesn't feel good. Isn't it wonderful? It's really paying off for you now. Joel is a talented mimic, and his delivery here is scathing. Contempt drips from every syllable. I've been trying to say for years I've been successful for a long time because I've been able to support myself as a musician since about the time I was 20. He's now 29, which is a miracle in itself. There are very few musicians who can support themselves just being musicians, so that's success. If you could support yourself being a musician, it's a miracle. The latest manifestation of, a mir- of the miraculous has taken place on a Thursday evening in mid-October at the 14,000-seat Chrysler Arena, University of Michigan Basketball Auditorium. Just past midnight in the cocktail lounge of the Briarwood Hilton in Ann Arbor, matters are more mundane. Besides the usual assortment of overnight salesmen and sp- aspiring academics, the room is crowded with couples unwinding after the show, doing the same at several tables. In the rear are Joel, his band, and his producer Phil Ramone, who's flown here from New York to discuss possibilities for a single. The beer flows, the clanning is continuous, drummer Liberty DeVito, Joel and sound engineer Brian Ruggles do a mock boogie to the bar band Soulless Top 40. Practical jokes and scatological wisecracks create a crossfire. There is also tension. Dun, dun, dun. Something to do with the presence of a reporter. Revenge is always a possibility in situations like this. Billy Joel does not just have the physical bearing of a hard guy after all, some people say he is one, and there is no question about whose turf this is. Barrooms are Billy's natural environment. In 1972, when the complexities of getting his career off the ground grew too unmanageable, Joel changed his name to Bill Martin and took a gig at the Executive Room, a bar in Los Angeles. It is a storied experience, partly because the lifestyle gave him the subject matter of his first approximation of a hit piano man, but it was also an aesthetically appropriate choice. So there's a lot of history here. Sort of interspersed with this moment of uh, meeting him at, at the bar. I, I like the documentation of like just being in the moment, like observing what's going on with Billy, Brian in the band and their interactions mm-hmm. and Bill Ramone flying in. You know, that kind of stuff is really interesting to me. Just, you know, a document of what was happening at that point. So, yeah. So this is a flagship article. I'll read the last few paragraphs. This is fun. On the other hand, there is no denying he has a temper. Late that night, around 3 or 4 a.m., I was heading from Billy's room back to my own. We went out into the hallway to say goodbye. 
We had already gotten a couple calls from the desk asking us to keep quiet. We hadn't been that loud, but Hyatt walls are thin. We did some last minute clowning when behind us, a door flew open. You going to stay out there yelling all night? Snapped a crone with her hair and curlers. Billy whirled around. Shut the fuck up, he snarled. She slammed her door. Go ahead. Call downstairs, he started to say. When he, ner- when he heard a noise from the other end of the hallway, you want to get into it too? He snapped at a doorway ahead of us, but I made haste to leave. Maybe that tough guy stuff was all a routine, but there's no point in making sure. Billy Joel, after all, doesn't take any shit from anybody. Staying on the Rolling Stone train, let's see what the actual review said. This is from uh, the same issue, written by Stephen Holden. I think I read this one before, but uh, I'm sure yeah. I have. On 52nd Street and The Stranger, Billy Joel is a quintessential post-rock entertainer, a vaudevillian piano man and mimic who, having come of age in the late 60s, has the grasp of rock and the technical know-how to be able to caricature both Bob Dylan and the Beatles as well as, quote, do and updated Anthony Newley, all in the same Las Vegas format. Joel seems to have been born knowing what many 70s pop stars have had to find out the hard way, that rock and roll has always been a part of show business. Being a pianist and a bravara one, he's always been more aware than many of his guitar-based peers that rock has always been a species of popular music and not a totally separate art form. That's a really compelling paragraph where it sounds disparaging at first to say that he's doing this stuff in a Las Vegas format. Right. Because that, you know, speaks to, at best, some Rat Pack kind of stuff, but really at worst, like, show bandy, a little bland. But the writer is also acknowledging that rock and roll quote has always been a part of show business. So it's like, he's not saying Billy's a sellout or that Billy's doing schmaltz. He's saying that Billy's just not pretending it's not schmaltz, I guess is the best way to put that. So it's right, an interesting right. juxtaposition of yeah. the criticisms we hear of Joel all the time, but then also with this justification for it. Mm-hmm. A bantam, hyperkinetic, rocky Balboa on stage, Joel works audiences into a lather of adulation with a snappy calculation of a Borscht Belt ham. As cockily aggressive as Sammy Davis Jr., there's the Vegas reference, he lards his performances with a shtick that usually includes impersonations of such genre greats as Elvis Presley, Bruce Springsteen, et al. Which is notable because, you know, Springsteen Springsteen did that a lot. Springsteen had these half-fantasy stories he would tell, you know, oh, especially yeah. in the early days. I mean, you know, once, once you got into like the 80s, I think he was... He'd talk about his dad and he'd be like a little more serious. But did you ever hear uh, Pretty Flamingos? I think it was mm-hmm. on uh, the Happy New Year boot. He's got this, me and Steve were walking down the street and this girl yeah. come out of nowhere. You know, and, and, and it just like, <laughs> it just like goes off into like this weird, like fantastical stuff. Yeah. So it's funny to put, to, to lump him in there when he's talking about how, you know, but, but, but Billy Joel's like a, like an old Jewish comedian, basically like a Jackie, right. um, Jackie Mason almost. <laughs> Uh, In the past, I've been hostile to this artist's feisty bravado, to the competitive edge of these impersonations, to Joel strutting himself off as a rock and roll winner because his blithe lampoons of rock icons have looked suspiciously like the blandishments of a spiritual imposter. But in all fairness, Billy Joel has never pretended to be more than the consummate showman that he is, and his charades contain a great deal of humor. Besides, times have changed. The late 70s are not very conducive to rock shamanism. Again, pretty interesting. We're out of the time when, like, I don't know, are we out of the point now by 1978 where we're looking to rock and roll for, like, spiritual guidance, you know? Are we getting off the mushrooms and a little more into the cocaine at this point? (laughs) Yeah, I think this might have been around the time that was the case. Because, you know, then as you got into the 80s, it went back into decadence again. Right. So yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And 
Joel is very much a phenomenon of the times, an urban realist in the age of gossip mongering and the sinking dollar, a cynical ultra-professional in a booming culture racket, the artistic standards of which are now almost completely determined by mass market technologies. This guy is going so far out of the way not to talk about these songs yet. Neither a great singer nor a great writer, Billy Joel is a great show business personality in the tradition of Al Jolson. Is that an insult in 1978? Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, yeah. The same qualities that distinguish his shtick also distinguish his singing, bluntness, brashness, a middle to lower middle class fringe urbanity, and plenty of heart. Joel's is a sidewalk voice from the chorus of West Side Story, venting chutzpah. His complete lack of vocal subtlety, though an artistic limitation, is still one of his charms. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about whether or not he lacks vocal subtlety. I read that as range first, and I was wrong. He's just talking about subtlety. Hmm. I'll give it to him. You know why? Because like, even like, I'm thinking of like, she's always a woman, and he's still got like a defensiveness to it, you know? Right, right. You know, it's still one of his yeah. charms. He's every scuffling city boy who ever made it big, crowing with ego, but also giving back his all. What do you think of the album, dude? It continues. Joel's songwriting forte is pop pastiche. As with so many rock stars, one of his most important early influences was Bob Dylan. In fact, Piano Man and Captain Jack, two of his more ambitious early tunes, as well as the more recent and better She's Always a Woman, are practically keyboard parodies of Dylan critiques. Both lyrically and musically, Joel's compositions tend to be very direct. There's not much beneath the surface. A little awkward, somewhat overstated, and extremely melodic. Billy Joel's best pop songs, sentimental standards such as New York State of Mind and Just the Way You Are, are closer to the old-fashioned tub-thumping Tin Pan Alley, Razzle Dazzle of George Gershwin, Cole Porter, or Richard Rodgers and Lorenz Hart. Perhaps the most characteristic Joel numbers e.g. The Entertainer, Only the Good Die Young, are breathless rave-ups that, when propelled by the singer's dauntless energy, remind one as much of pep talks as they do songs. Recently, Joel has mastered Beatlesque pop rock, moving out Anthony's song from The Stranger and My Life. Zanzibar and Half a Mile Away from 52nd Street have a jittery note-to-syllable dictation reminiscent of Paul McCartney's Playful Rockers. Billy Joel would probably still be only a cult figure, idolized in concert, but poorly represented on record if he hadn't found the perfect studio collaborator and producer Phil Ramone. Starting with The Stranger, the two completely rethought Joel's music. Instead of focusing on a piano, they built arrangements around a band, balancing the singer's piano playing against Steve Kahn's guitar, then adding studio ornaments to make sophisticated, elusive rock glosses. Here, Joel saxophonist Richie Cannata becomes his foil in a Clarence Clemens, Bruce Springsteen sort of relationship. The rhythm is powered by a streamlined Elton John slash wing style propulsion, and everything is mixed hot. The result is as perfect and flattering a studio presentation as can be imagined. 52nd Street, also produced by Ramon, is more rock-oriented than The Stranger and quite different in spirit. Whereas The Stranger, particularly in its centerpiece, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, captured the texture of urban neighborhood life in an Edward Hopper-like light. 52nd Street evokes the carnivalesque neon glare of nighttime Manhattan, using painterly strokes of jazz here and there to terrific effect. The characters in Joel's new composition... Puerto Rican street punk half a mile away, a social climber, big shot, a sexual bitch, 
Stiletto, a Barfly sports fan, Zanzibar, and a Cuban guitarist, Rosalinda Zeiss, comprise a sidewalk portrait gallery of midtown hustlers and dreamers. The likenesses, though roughly sketched, are inaccurate and sometimes even tinged with romance, Rosalinda's eyes. The artist's fault-finding songs are among his least interesting, and Stiletto, a psychologically trite bit of misogyny, is the LP's one outright failure. Even the numbers aren't, that aren't portrait fit nicely into Joel's scheme. Honesty, a big brazen Anthony Newley-type ballad, laments the cynicism and loneliness behind the facade of Gotham glamour, while 52nd Street is a fragmentary pop-jazz picture postcard until the night Niffley recreates Phil Spector's New York. Can I jump in one second? A couple funny things about this paragraph. One, he calls it a picture postcard, which is see, seems like uh, an unintentional allusion to souvenir. Right. Both being those like sort of like tacked on less than two minute or so uh, codas to the albums. And then I'm wondering where he gets Puerto Rican street punk for half a mile away and Cuban guitarist for Rosalinda's eyes. Right. Just a thought. Nothing about yeah. half a mile away has to be Puerto Rican at all. Right. Right. No. There's nothing in there. And, no. and I, yeah. To me, and it's I just, always, you know, New York kids, you know, causing trouble, you know, after the parents go to bed. I think he's a little racist. <laughs> you may be right. Joel tried once before to imitate Spectre and say goodbye to Hollywood on the self-produced turnstiles but failed to build a mighty enough wall of sound. This time, his caricature of that master pop caricaturist works splendidly. The singer is as keenly aware as Spectre of the ridiculousness as well as the sublimity of the big city teenage sexual jungle. And because his Righteous Brothers imitation is as tongue-in-cheek as it is reverent, until the night works both in tribute and joke. Billy Joel and Phil Ramone are the first artist-producer combination to capture the precarious balance between the ludicrous and the monumental in Phil Spector. How can anyone take Spector more than half seriously these days? And Joel's lyric, simultaneously nonsensical, self-parodying, and romantic, is as charming as it is bogus. Until the Night is the formal piece de resistance of an album that, though far from great, boasts much of the color and excitement of a really good New York street fair. I think he misses the mark on Until the Night. I think he's keying into yeah. the fact that Billy knows he's doing a Phil Spector, Everly Brothers send up, but I don't think yeah. it's a parody. I don't think it's a joke. I think I think he's on to the fact that he's, for as dramatic as it is, he knows he's putting it on, but I don't think parody is the right word there. I also don't think it's nonsensical. I think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This is that thing we've seen in other songs where he sort of is keenly aware of someone not being in the house or not being home. And, and you know, the, yeah. that sense of missing someone uh, that we know is something he thought about a lot in real life because when Alexa, Alexa was born, he really wanted to be home and he really did, did everything he can. He didn't want to make the bridge and he wrote a song about it. To say it's bogus, no, nah, I don't think so. I mean, there's no way he yeah. did that. This guy could have known that back then. We say this with the, with the benefit of hindsight. Sure. But it's yeah. worth pointing out. Yeah, certainly. So here's the uh, John Rockwell, Billy Joel sings the praises of New York, right, December 10th, 1978. Most adults have heard of Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones, but unless they have teenage children, chances are they haven't the vaguest notion of who Billy Joel is. Yet Mr. Joel, who's made a career as a touring musician for eight years now, is presently the hottest male singer in the land. His last two albums, The Stranger and 52nd Street, have sold some 6 million copies. Between them, 
in this country in 1978 alone. Well, that's a good capstone to this episode. With 52nd Street firmly ensconced in the number one spot on all the album sales charts for well over a month. Furthermore, for New York pop fans, this is a classic case of local boy making good. Mr. Joel comes from the Levittown area of Hicksville on Long Island and divides his non-touring time now between an apartment on 57th Street near 2nd Avenue and a home in Cove's Neck. To make things all the sweeter, he's made it with precious little help from the rock critics who helped propel those other New York suburbanites, Bruce Springsteen and Patti Smith, to their current eminence. At this point, with his cocky New York street smart demeanor and one of his signature tunes, New York State of Mind, he's become a symbol of this city for the rest of the country and a beloved one to boot. And to top it all off, Mr. Joel will play Madison Square Garden for the first time this week, three shows on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, that sold out almost immediately after tickets went on sale. Earlier this year, Mr. Joel, who's toured some eight months annually for most of this decade, was still playing small halls and even clubs. But for the tour that began in the third week of September and ends at the Garden, it's been indoor arenas all the way. At Atlanta's Omni, he offered basically the same two and one half hour show he'll give in New York. Mr. Joel is an energetic performer, casually relaxed, yet exuberantly active. The Atlanta crowd seemed a little passive at first, though they cheered New York State of Mind and even a passing reference to Oyster Bay, Long Island, in another song with surprising fervor. By the encores, they were on their feet. We'll skip some of the biographical stuff that we've, uh, you know, gone through plenty of times. Mr. Joel's style is now a most interesting amalgam of various sorts of New York mid-1970s music, and that's part of the reason that so many rock credits react to him with such undisguised hostility. Given the common complaints that he's calculating and imitative, it's no wonder Mr. Joel insists in his interviews about the instinctual process of his songwriting and complains that his critics make unwarranted assumptions about his motivations and deny him the quote respect he so obviously craves. The trouble with Mr. Joel's stance, as far as his critics are concerned, is that he combines bantam cock aggression. I need to use that phrase more in regular life. Right? Bantam. First, I'm going to look up bantam. A chicken of small breed the male of which is noted for its aggression. <laughs> I like it. Bantam cock. Oh, we're getting the E this time. I actually have to set whether it's E or not. It's actually me who does it. Oh, really? Well, don't set it. Mm-hmm. Let everybody get surprised. <laughs> bantam cock. It's getting late. Is <laughs> He combines bantam cock aggression. We're like Normally, and butthead uh, over here. <laughs> you said <laughs> cock. <laughs> that ruled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, come on, I'm gonna say it one more time now. He Here's my bad breed Billy Joel articles. Yeah, <laughs> that's a new movie from Mike Judge. Oh man! All right, <clears throat> is that he combines bantam cock aggression? That's hyphenated, by the way. Bantam hyphen cock aggression, normally an attribute prized in rock and rollers, with a penchant for middle of the road balladeering. To this writer's tastes. While there are undeniable moments of the pathetic in Mr. Joel's work, e.g. Just the Way You Are with its sexism and sentimentality, and while some of his songs noodle on a bit facelessly in a jazz-rocking idiom, he has a lot of strong pop appeal and an attractive blend of rock energy and jazz-ish, jazz-ish sophistication. Compared to most of the newly popular middle-of-the-roaders, he's downright classy. Well, that's an interesting comparison to make, you know, when you have those guys that are going soft rock, and, yeah. you know, he's, he's sort of in that camp, but a little more raucous than that. Yeah. A lot of critics are caught up in enthusiasm for punk new wave rock. So let's just go ahead and foreshadow glass houses and define New York's recent uh, pop, our pop music renaissance. I guess it's pop music renaissance in these terms alone. For some of them, even Mr. Springsteen is perilously close to the middle of the road, let alone such excrescence. I don't know. X got me on this one. Man, what was 1978? Yeah. They all had the thesaurus out this year. 
Uh, seriously. I know, man. I okay. Like, what is this? An excrescence, a projection or outgrowth, especially when abnormally warty in the colon. That's awfully specific. I like that one too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make yeah. some flashcards. Let alone such <laughs> excrescences for them as Meatloaf or Barry Manilow. Mr. Joe quite legitimately argues that New York's music is more than just the New Wavers. I don't think the punks are typically representative of the whole spectrum of New York music. I want to present another point of view, but I didn't want to be Barry Manilow either. Interesting juxtaposition. The result yeah. is a form of fusion music that owes much of the energies of New York session musicians like Steve Kahn, who's played guitar in Mr. Joe's last two albums, and to the New York rock of the 1960- early 1960s, the kind Mr. Joe grew up with, but that is usually ignored in rock histories that stress the form's southern rural roots. So we go on to talk about some of the people that influenced him. Uh, didn't get into the Grateful Dead. I tried it. I got stoned. I did everything, but... But look, I like guitar playing. I like intelligent guitar work. I don't like mindless boogie jams. Does anybody have modeled myself after? It's Paul McCartney. And it's never been picked up on. I see critics compare me to Elton John. I see Harry Shapin. And I go, no, no, it's McCartney. Fair enough. I think they figured it out eventually. <laughs> By the time uh, Glass House is rolled around with Through the Long Night, Don't Ask Me Why. Yeah. There's Beatles all over that record. I go back to all of them, though. I'm a sponge for all kinds of stuff. A song like Earth Angel in the 50s. Uh, that's a rock and roll song, but if it came out now, they'd call it M.O.R. or a ballad, but it was rock and roll to me. Another foreshadowing of Glass Houses. Room of Our Own, rock and roll to me. It's like, this stuff's going around in his head. Yeah, he's he's get, he's catching these phrases, perhaps organically, too. You know, he's yeah. kind of spitting them out and, and keeping the good ones. Which, okay, so here's a nice one. Let's, let's wrap 1978 with this quote from him uh, in the New York Times. I don't feel that much different. I've always liked what I do. I still like what I do, and I hope to God I can keep it in perspective. I'm going to be a musician my whole life. I look at Coliseum rock groups that I think are horrible, and they draw millions of, peop- millions of people. Now, is that success? As long as I got my self-respect, that's all I care about. And that's exactly what he's done his entire career. He's making the albums and writing the songs that he wants to do. And everything is driven by what's going to fulfill him or not. Covered a lot of ground here, but then again, so did Billy back in 1978. So we're going to take a breath and we're going to kick it over to you guys. Who got on the train in 78? Who got on uh, after The Stranger with Platinum, but before 52nd Street went platinum? Who bought that album, yeah. 52nd Street, in the scant few weeks before it went platinum? Yeah, and did you see Billy, too, on this first arena tour? And I, I'm also curious, people who saw The Stranger tours and earlier, and then also this 52nd Street tour, what was your impression of Billy and the band's jump from theaters and clubs to the big arenas? Did you feel it lost something or did it gain something in the energy? What was your interpretation of the transition? Before we roll out, I want to read off some uh, comments from Jeff Fisher, who again provided us with much of the timeline and information here. That's set up to The Stranger. Falls 1977, he says, being the precursor to 1978. You know, this was the make or break moment, The Stranger. He had the cult following, but didn't have the album sales yet. Uh, He makes the point, it's hard to ignore how important Just the Way You Are was to Billy's career. And also hard to believe that this song only hit number three on the charts because it was, quote, everywhere on every station and the exposure was tremendous. I like this, um, this note that he makes. Billy Joel fills the Elton John void. And, and speaks to this being one of the reasons why 77, 78 were so good for him. There is no debate that Elton John dominated the piano rock pop world in the early 70s. His fame and the shadow it created was huge. There was really no room for Billy in the prime Elton years of 70 to 76. However, they say timing is everything. By 1977-ish, Elton was quickly fading from the public's view. Call it overexposure. Call it a good run that was over. 
Call it controversy over his sexual orientation, call you what you want, it was fading. For different reasons, other monster 1970s pop artists were also quickly fading out of the consciousness. He talks about the Beatles, Solo Beatles, Stevie Wonder, John Denver. Others were being replaced with disco, punk, and new wave. And the few saviors of rock, which hinged very heavily on Springsteen's continued rise from 75. Billy Joel was also somebody that many pointed to a major artist they were going to get behind and support. He filled the void for many music lovers, and it was really a timing issue, perfect timing for Billy. It's not that Billy was suddenly, quote, talented. It was that instead of him being a quick reviewer or passing glance, people took the time to really check out his music. So I agree with him in the fact that, that timing played a part. But, you know, um, quoting or paraphrasing Liberty's book again, you know, it's that idea of being so ready when the moment strikes, you know, having the right band, having the songwriting chops, having the road experience that... When you hook up with Phil Ramone and there's suddenly an opening on the field that you can take, you're 110% prepared to make the most of it. You can run that right into the end zone. You know, his measure of, of success was being able to simply make a living as a musician, which he was already doing. It was more about finding the right ingredients that were going to make the live shows he wanted, make the albums he wanted, as opposed to, you know, put together the hit machine that was going to sell me a ton of records. It was more right. about fulfilling his artistic need. Mm -hmm. And that just happened to lead to the album sales and everything that came along with it. But that was not his goal. And I think right. that made it a much more organic and a much more patient process. I feel like that's a good point to uh, leave off here. I think we've hit everything. We've asked everybody for their opinions. Oh, there's one yeah. more thing we have to do. Do you feel like doing it this time around? I suppose so. <laughs> you know, we're all over the place. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We've got a new Discord server. Shoot us a note on any of the socials or email us for the link to that. We've got some good discussions happening over there right now. So uh, we're slowly picking up some steam and it's some good folks. So a lot of fun over there on the Discord. And, uh, you know, we've got the email. As always, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Guys are giving us some great feedback, some great show ideas, some great insights, some great experiences. It's just you guys are really adding so much to each and every episode we do. Thank you all. Uh, thanks again to Jeff Fisher. I'm going to go drop the needle on 52nd Street, read some more uh, articles by Eve Siebert, and call it a night. That sounds like a great plan. We'll see you next time, everyone. See you next time. Big shot. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.